pickled ginger in your ramen, taking a bath in curry, and samurais being baffled by the Dutch. This week, we're in Hakata, Japan. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where food and travel come together at DestinationEatDrink.com, on the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel, and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're in Hakata, Japan, with foodie tour guide Bruce Handel from Hakata Foodie Experiences. We talk about traditional ramen broth, Sri Lankan food in Japan, and why the nearby airport was deleted from the internet. But first, if you like the show, if you like food and travel, please rate and review the podcast. Taking a couple seconds to do this helps more people learn about Destination Eat Drink and helps me do more and better shows. And thank you very much. Bruce Sandell is an American who's been living in Japan for decades. His expertise on Japanese food and culture helps make it accessible to North Americans and Europeans visiting the country. Bruce tells me how Hakata has become a foodie hotspot with people traveling from around the world to try the city's amazing dishes. We talk about some traditional cuisine, some modern dishes too, like Japanese cheesecake and the Portuguese influence on Japanese food. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Bruce Handel from Hakata Foodie Experiences. Thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you and about your great foodie city in Japan. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start off by getting our bearings here, because I think a lot of Westerners, North American folks, they might not have heard of Hakata in Japan. So where exactly are you? Okay, so... Japan has four main islands, and we are the one that's kind of famous because Nagasaki is located here. And the city that I live in has kind of an identity crisis because we have two names. The samurai part of the city is Fukuoka, and the merchant part is Hakata. And so we've kind of solved that by having the airport be Fukuoka Airport and the bullet train station known as Hakata. And for me... I thought Hakata sounds better because the name Fukuoka in the past used to get deleted um, when I when I had it as my like my AOL address. They thought it was an obscene word. Right. <laughs> Travel agents know it because our call letters are F U K. Kind of a controversial place, but Fukuoka and Hakata are the same place, and it's the capital of Kyushu Island, which has it's the size of say Denmark or Montana with the population of Australia. I'm going to, just for the sake of, um, I don't know, consistency, but also so I don't stumble over and accidentally say something, I'm going to say Hakata, um, because your company yeah, yeah. is called Hakata Foodie Experience, just just to be safe. Um, <laughs> and, you know, most, most folks are familiar with uh, Tokyo, so, how, you know, you said Nagasaki isn't too far. How, how far are we from Tokyo, just to get an idea? From Tokyo? Well, it's about a... About 660 miles, and it's about a two-hour flight. 
And if you take the bullet train, which is ripping along at 300 kilometers an hour, it takes about five and a half hours by bullet train. So, wow, it's pretty far. Yeah, I guess it's like like going from New York to Florida, maybe. That's a long distance, and you know, five and a half hours, you can barely get from Porto to Faro, which is the far north to the far south of Portugal, on the on the hot what they call I'm using air quotes here the high speed train, and. Portugal is only the size of Indiana, not the entire eastern seaboard. Those bullet trains in Japan are just engineering marvels to me. Yeah, they really are. And because they're so fantastic, I even incorporate them into one of my tours. How's that? Well, we ride a train. What we do is we take off from the main train station at 8.30, which is not too early. And we go all the way to the south of the island. And it takes, there's only a single stop on this train. And we get there at 9.46 a.m., and hop in a taxi, and then we take a ferry, and we get to this island where there's an active volcano in the center. But the thing is, people, if you've never been on a bullet train before, you start the day riding a bullet train for an hour and 16 minutes, and then you find yourself on a, in, in a, in, you know, on a ferry going across this beautiful water with an, literally a smoking volcano over there. And I don't know how, do you have any smoking volcanoes in Portugal? Probably not. There's inactive ones on the Azores, but uh, yeah, none, uh, none currently. <laughs> Although I think on oh, the Azores, right. they did have, uh, I think in the fifties, uh, they had one that blew up and that sent a lot of uh, refugees to, uh, to the U S to the East coast of the U S. Oh, wow. Really? Well, this is a very strange, yeah. You know, my destination is so funny because the, this, Volcano erupts daily, a oh. little bit, a little bit of activity, but it's not rock, it's dust. And there will be, well, I haven't had any problem with it. I've, I've taken cyclists around it a few times, and we've never had to use a shelter or anything. But you get this big cloud, and it makes for some great photographs. And uh, I combine that with eating some of the local delicacies, because the volcanic soil is is really fantastic. And people live there because you get incredible fruits and vegetables from this volcanic soil. And, uh, but that's not where Hakata is. We're going to talk mostly about Hakata here, but you mentioned you get great fruits and vegetables there. So before we jump back to Hakata on the bullet train, what would be one of your favorite dishes that you would get uh, near this volcano with this great volcanic soil? Japanese meals tend to be pretty well-rounded, so we've always got a serving of, say, rice, absolutely rice, miso soup, some meat, and then sides of vegetables, pickled vegetables. And the thing that I remember most from Kagoshima is just gigantic uh, daikon, radishes. Mm. And basically, yeah, Japan's not a super diverse place when it comes to fruits and veggies. I'm, I'm pretty sure that in Portugal you're going to have much more of a range of things, but the standard things that appear in every meal, they're just huge. And when I say huge, I mean, just, it's great. We grow like really large vegetables down, down South in Kyushu. And, uh, they're not quite as big up here in Fukuoka, in Hakata, because we don't have the active volcanoes that, uh, what fertilize the soil, I guess. You're American, Bruce. You're in Japan. You've been there for quite a while, but I'm curious, how did, how did you end up in Japan in the first place? I had always wanted to come to Japan. 
as a little kid, I was intrigued that everything good that I owned came from Japan. Hmm. Seiko watch, Minolta camera, Honda motorcycle. When I got my first car, it was a Toyota. Everything good. Even our piano, was a Yamaha, came from Japan. So when I was out in the West Coast going to the University of Washington, and uh, I had an opportunity to go over in the mid-1980s, and the opportunity was caused really by a good ski accident. I needed something to do while I was recovering, and I thought, why not go to Japan and teach English? So I bought a one-way ticket to Hong Kong, and I took $400, and I came over here. But I did have an acquaintance who offered to let me stay for three months, and I thought I'd come over and learn Japanese, but it takes a little bit longer than three months, so I've been here 38 years, still struggling. How's your, how's your Japanese now after 38 years? Well, I can order food, that's for sure. But I would say my Japanese is advanced conversational, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be a, a master of the language. I kind of cheated for many years. I had a secretary, so I relied on that. Because as, as Steve Martin would say, like, they've got a different word for everything over here. <laughs> so you, you wind up in Japan, you're teaching English. And then, I don't know, at some point, uh, you obviously love food. Um, you decide that uh, you want to start uh, Hakata Foodie. What is it about Hakata that makes it such a foodie hotspot? Okay, well, throughout the years, we've known that this place had incredible restaurants, and not just Japanese, but all types of things. For example, we've had Sri Lankan food here for 30 years, and we have incredible French and Italian and just Japanese are really fanatics about everything that they do. So we have amazing bakeries and things. I wanted to share this with my friends. And it's always been a goal of mine ever since I was really young to get paid for doing things that I like to do. So I've been guiding people for probably 39 years. And I thought, why not guide people to restaurants? And so I set up a cut the foodie. And then all of a sudden, I had to shut it down for three and a half years because of uh, COVID. And then I just really reopened it full on in uh, May this year. Hmm. But what's happening is I have already done like 18 tours since then, which is it's quite a lot, I think. And I could have done more, but I did a little traveling in between. <laughs> Food, Hakata is famous now. I think... Um, the New York Times let the cat out of the bag, and now people know that this is a foodie destination. So after you've been to Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka, this is the next step. You're the second person on the podcast to mention Sri Lankan food in, in fairly short order. I was talking to uh, Michaela Malazi, and she does a TV show in the United States called Bare Feet, and she mentioned Sri Lankan cuisine in New York City. And now you're mentioning Sri Lankan cuisine in Japan. Um, what's your impression of Sri Lankan cuisine? I'm curious because I personally have never had it. I kind of oh. wrongly assumed that it was, you know, just uh, a variation on Indian food, but I'm, I'm totally wrong, I guess. Well, no, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, the Southern, you know, Madras is similar, but Sri Lankan curry, I think the use of cardamom as a spice is kind of unique to Sri Lanka. What people go for here is sort of a soup-type curry with chicken and 
potato that's been kind of stewed. And of course, the main thing would be either noodles, really fine noodles, or rice. But it's just out of this world. I mean, once you taste Sri Lankan curry, I don't want to sound too extreme, but I think I could take a bath in it. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> and um, we, we probably eat it. I don't know if I, if I can. I'd like to eat it a couple times a month. You mentioned, uh, you know, you mentioned some of these outside influences. I guess, does that come from the fact that Hakata is a port city, the fact that it's so close to Korea? Is that why you've got these different influences? And what are some of the other ones that you might have there? Well, it's interesting that you say that because the location of, of Fukuoka, we had the very first Chinatown in all of Japan. Hmm. And in modern history, we had the first Costco. <laughs> we're always, we're just we're actually closer. Like I can take a high speed boat and be in South Korea. Excuse me, in a little more than two hours. So we're really close to the Korean Peninsula, and we've had trade with China for like a thousand years. So there's there is a lot of Chinese food here. There's a lot of Korean food and a lot of people from both places here. But we also have a lot of influence, like I said, from Portugal. And Holland, um, and that's due to uh, the history of Japan, you know, the history of Nagasaki, I guess, when they only allowed the, the Dutch to come into uh, to that little island called Dejima, and they allowed trade with the Dutch. And before that, we had Portuguese missionaries, I guess. I don't know. We've always been kind of an international place. More, yeah, before airplanes, when people would come by ship, they would come through our island. It's fascinating, the Portuguese influence, because the other places that I, that I talk about sometimes in this podcast, when you talk about Portuguese influence, inevitably, it's about colonization, you know, whether we're talking about Brazil or India or, um, you know, wherever, where, you know, there's, there's lots of places in Africa as well, where the Portuguese came and they colonized the place. This is different in Japan. There were, in my understanding of my basic Portuguese history, which is obviously limited, I'm not Portuguese, but um, in the studying that I've done since I've been here, is that Japan was a different thing. And you mentioned it. It was more um, missionary-driven, more Christian missionary-driven rather than colonial. Um, is there any remnant of that Portuguese influence in your city. If I go into a bakery, would I find a pastel de nata? It doesn't have to be that specifically, but is there any kind of influence that I might see in Hakata? That's interesting. I think that I don't know the Portuguese names for the bakery items. And I, I think it was hard for the Japanese to probably to pronounce them. Sure. So the ones that we remember are the ones that are phonetic and sound like Japanese, like tempura. Mm-hmm. And Costella. And I don't really know when the item that you're describing, probably if I saw a picture of it, I might say, oh, yeah, that's something that we call something else here. Oh, right. But the real influence is, I mean, tempura is a huge thing. The idea of batter dipped things that obviously came from the Portuguese. More than Fukuoka, you're going to have more influence from Portugal in Nagasaki because it's Nagasaki is a a couple hours away from here, and it's a port city itself. But I will occasionally see some Japanese with freckles, and that's another influence from Portugal. <laughs> They're not going to get those naturally in Asia. Oh, fascinating. 
I had always had, as someone who lived in the United States my whole life, um, tempura to me was Japanese. I always assumed it was Japanese. I'd only had it in Japanese restaurants, really. And then I came to Portugal, and they were quick to point out, no, tempura is Portuguese. And now we get these, uh, one of my favorite dishes is we get these long, green, flat green beans dipped in uh, tempura batter and fried at this restaurant called uh, Ponto Final in Almada, and they are just, oh, out of this world. I'm, my mouth is watering just thinking about it right now. Um, do, you, uh, do you enjoy tempura in uh, Hakata? Yeah, well, it's definitely one of our favorites. I, I was going to say that you know Portugal was, was occupying Macau, right? That was the first yes. European colony in all of Asia. Yes. And when you go to Macau, the Portuguese food there is not tempura. They have something that probably came from Angola or something like that. And it's called, they call it African chicken. And that is out of sight. And I wish we had it here in Japan, Hmm. but that's a Macau thing. So the most obvious thing for sure, tempura has become as, as, as Japanese as it gets, but it, and we all know that it originally came from Portugal. That's the most main thing. And probably there are some bakery items too, because the Portuguese are definitely not going to be the ones who introduced sashimi and things like that. And, we don't want to confuse any Portuguese contribution to the Dutch things. I mean, I guess the Dutch introduced cheese here. And the Japanese really thought that was pretty strange. <laughs> the reason I say that is you can you can read the diaries of some of the samurai the early encounters. And they're trying to learn as much from the Dutch people, and they say they drink the lactate of cows. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it, it's a weird concept, right? Yeah, it really is, and we all sort of take it for granted that we drink the yeah, <laughs> it's, it is pretty weird. But I guess, yeah, it's, it's a habit. I can't imagine a meal without dairy products, and yet it's it's kind of strange. When I moved to Japan, they didn't eat too much cheese, but now everything is cheese-flavored, and they add it to everything. And I think Koreans have done the same. They're all excited about using cheese. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. Is Portugal a big cheese place? Yeah, it's actually a very, it's a big cheese producer. Queijo is is a big part of the diet. And um, Portuguese cheese is really good. And they, they're getting some artisan producers here too. Um, and it's all kinds. It's uh, goat cheese and sheep's milk cheese and cow's cheese. And um, people are starting to do some interesting things with, uh, with the cheese as well. But everywhere you go, every... Um, uh, you know, market or grocery, they'll have these huge cheese vendors and, um, you know, cheese, really? yeah, cheese is inexpensive and, um, you know, the quality for the most part is, is pretty darn good. Sounds like a real opportunity to come over and exploit the nostalgic connection between Japan and Portugal <laughs> and start bringing in cheese. I think, I think maybe the Japanese might embrace it. Who knows? Yeah, I think they would. You know, the Japanese seem to embrace everything um that they don't produce locally they, they try it um, but when i first got here everybody was pretty much eating japanese food and only some basic european things and now there's just literally everything i mean we're getting even middle eastern influences and things like that happening a lot of turkish food and fascinating i can tell you one thing that we are deprived of is middle eastern food that's that's the least uh, available, uh, you know, good kebabs and things like that. It'd be nice to have here. Huh. 
Yeah, there's uh, kebab places are popping up all over here. That there's no shortage of kebab in uh, in Portugal, but real Middle Eastern food's a little bit more difficult to find. Although this amazing Syrian restaurant uh, just opened about a year ago, um, not too far from us. So uh, we can find it, but not as prevalent as as I would like to see here. Um, but I did want to I did want to talk to you about ramen. Because I think a lot of people, the first dish they think of, maybe they think of sushi when they think of Japan immediately, but I think ramen has to be really near the top of the list. Everyone knows ramen, but Hakata, you guys have your own particular spin on ramen, your own kind of ramen. What is it about that that makes it so special and what makes it different? Okay, so in other parts of Japan, ramen would have a miso base or a salt base. Um, like in Tokyo, they have shio ramen, salt-based, and miso ramen. And most people associate ramen that way. But in Hakata, it's got to be pork bone soup that has been cooked for, it's simmered for days. And we have this, it's called tonkotsu ramen. And it's basically like a pork broth that is super thick and super high in sodium, but really delicious. The ramen noodles in Hakata are, are very thin. And the soup, the standard Hakata ramen is, I guess the soup is quite salty and I would say oily. And you, you have a few slices of roast pork in there. A lot of people eat ramen with the same, uh, pickled ginger that you eat with sushi, the beni shoga. There'll be a little bit of a dollop of that and some, uh, bam, what do they call this? Tree ears, I guess it is. I forgot the names in English. Some of the things that we eat over here. <laughs> but a bowl of Hakata ramen is probably the most requested item on any food tour. Yes, we want to try yeah, Hakata ramen, not Tokyo ramen, not Sapporo ramen, but Hakata ramen. And people here are fiercely proud of it. And there are restaurants that you can go in and you just sit down. You don't even have to order. They bring you a bowl. It's really fun. I love this idea of pickled ginger, like like pickled vinegary um, maybe a little bit sweet added to a salty umami broth. That sounds divine to me. It is, it's rather heavenly. And it's one of the things that you miss when you, when you live in Japan and you travel abroad. And very few places I know can produce it outside of Japan. And maybe if, you'll, if you spend five times the price, you can probably get it in New York. And I know that you could get it in London. The real thing, but it's always prepared by people who have, you know, born and raised in Japan, and they do the traditional methods. Real Hakata ramen. You could actually, I would say, your closest place to get it is probably in London. Hmm. Yeah, but but then I'm not in Hakata, hanging out with you, enjoying, uh, you know, enjoying a nice uh, ramen and who knows what else. So, well, natural accompaniment to ramen, by the way, is gyoza. Do you know what gyoza is? No, I don't. Gyoza, there seems to be like, you know, foods of the world. Like a gyoza is like a pelmini in Russia or a pierogi in, in Poland. Okay. And it's just little okay. dumplings. But these ones, they're primarily pork fillings with, with leeks and, or garlic and scallions, I guess. And perfect accompaniment to ramen. And it's, it might seem like a carb overload, but people often will have a bowl of rice, gyoza, and ramen, and that's a meal. Mm. They don't want 
overcrowd it with any vegetables or anything like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and what would we drink? Beer? Sake? What would we have? Beer for sure. Japan has excellent beer and, of course, sake and shochu, which is gaining popularity all around the world. Shochu can be brewed from either wheat or potatoes. And I, I actually had to stop drinking alcohol when I got to Japan because it was over, it was flowing too, too easily. And I, I decided to focus on the food and uh, say goodbye to the alcohol and uh, ride a motorcycle instead. And mm. as a result, I've probably gained 50 pounds, <laughs> but I'm happy and I'm safe. Yeah. Good strategy. I, I like, I like your way of thinking, Bruce. I want to talk about another dish in Hakata called, um, and you got to forgive my pronunciations here, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go. Uh, Matsuabe. Um, this dish. Ooh, almost. <laughs> I, I do my best. You know, I, I'm, I'm talking to people from all over the world and I know I'm going to stumble, but I just figure I dive in there and you go ahead and correct me. <laughs> Here's how you would say it. Motsunabe. Motsunabe. Right. And that is a dish of stewed tripe, I guess is the way we would do it. You know, menudo, menudo in Mexico, it's, it's um, intestines, beef intestines generally, and cooked in a, either a miso broth or, or a soy sauce-based broth with lots of scallions. And I remember being here when it became popular, this motsunabe, because they used to throw the guts away. They didn't used to eat it in Japan. They, somebody came up with this dish where it was really oily and Japanese love the texture, like kind of like rubber bands. <laughs> it's a lot like squid. Right, right. It, you know, it, it fights with you when you eat it. But I don't eat it too often because it is a calorie bomb, but it is quite delicious. And it's a Hakata specialty, really, is motsunabe and miso, miso flavor out of this world. When you started describing this dish to me, Bruce, I was thinking, this sounds like a, a dish born out of poverty. You know, you hear about dishes like this in Sicily. You know, when I hear about tripe, I immediately think of like Sicily or something like that, or, or maybe one of these, uh, you know, one of these pork sandwiches in Portugal that are made with uh, cheap cuts of meat. And, and then suddenly it, be, it becomes elevated and it becomes popular with uh, mainstream and foodies and whatnot. But it sounds like that's not where this dish was born. A am I right on that? I don't know. I mean, it's funny because they, uh, they literally they used to call the, the material, that, the meat part that they used, they used to call it hormone. And horu means to throw it away. <laughs> right. And what happened, in the, I guess it was late 80s, it became kind of a trendy dish and they started flying plane loads of beef guts in from Australia oh. to make motsunabe because it became such a trendy thing. So may, it maybe originally used to be something that only poor people would even consider eating at all. Um, but now it's quite fashionable and yeah, all of a sudden it's a, it's a pricey item and it's, you have to get reservations to go to a good motsunabe place. But it, it's, it strikes me as the kind of thing that nobody would eat in the United States. No, 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 no. Chitlins. You know. Yeah, oh, this no. this is the kind of thing like people eat on a dare, you know. <laughs> well, just coming to Japan, I would say you you hit it right right on the head. You got to have hakata ramen. You got to have motsunabe. You definitely have to have gyoza. And then another one, which is more famous in Kyoto, is the kaiseki. That's the kind of food that I think everyone pictures when they think of Japan, where the, the food is cut 
and arranged in such a beautiful way that it, it really is a feast for the eyes. And even though Kyoto is really famous for it, there's plenty of kaiseki down here in Hakata where they're using fresh local ingredients. And it's kind of like a cuisine, you know, just a few things laid out on a plate, but really beautiful. And see, after you eat kaiseki, then you go out for a bowl of ramen to fill up. <laughs> so what would be on the kaiseki dish, you know, on the platter? What would we see? What kinds of things? Uh, well, the list of ingredients is really extensive. And what I think of when I think of kaiseki is like rencon. Boy, I don't even, how do you say rencon? Um, lotus root? I guess in English. And a lot of these things, I, we would never eat these kind of tuber type things. But in Japan, they, they boil them and they cook them in a broth and they're wonderful. These root kind of vegetables. Um, things like bamboo shoots and like I said, rencon, which is lotus root, which probably doesn't mean anything to you because we just don't eat that in the States. But a lot of these root things and some stewed type carrot, but again, not in a terrible way, stewed in a, in a fish broth. And there would definitely be some shrimp and some chicken and even a very thinly sliced piece of beef that is cooked like medium rare. And it would be served in courses. You know, it was they would bring it out one at a time, each dish at a time. Every one of those is a masterpiece. And, and, and there's always a soup custard called uh, chawan mushi, which is an egg custard with, with uh, a little bit of seafood and bamboo shoot. Um, but it has, it, it's a standard dish that you get at a, at a sushi bar. Um, but that would be part of kaiseki too. And of course, you'd have to have the miso soup and probably maybe a crab claw in the miso soup, something to make it fancy. Um, but there will be extraneous things like a leaf, a little tiny leaf and a, a little flower or something. That's, that's what kaiseki is really all about, is being as pleasing to the eye as it is to the palate. And you eat it very slowly. It's not fast food. Well, the other day I had a kaiseki meal and I think it was about, well, for Japan, it was very expensive. It was probably about 25,000 yen, which maybe a hundred $150. And I was still hungry afterwards. <laughs> so you went out and got a cheap bowl of ramen. <laughs> I was thinking about it, but since I was at a hot spring town, <laughs> I, in a rare, in a rare moment of what is it, <laughs> restraint, I held on to breakfast, which had thirty different ingredients because they also have kaiseki breakfasts. Oh wow! And that was amazing. And now the only way to describe that is in photographs. It's just. Too beautiful to be true. You almost feel bad eating it because it's such a work of art. If you're a foodie, Japan will never disappoint you. Unless you don't like fish and your idea of a good time is, is a big piece of steak and potatoes. That's not something you're going to find too often over here. Everything is going to be portioned in little teeny pieces of meat. And the fish is going to have its head on it. And it's, it's a different experience. Right, right. What about vegetarians and vegans? Because we've talked about pork. We've talked about beef, seafood, all of these things. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned nice vegetables, uh, daikon radishes and, and whatnot, but it seems more of a, of, of a side to the main course. Do you ever have vegetarians and vegans on your, uh, on your food trips, and do they starve? I sure do. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I make sure I feed everybody really well. Of course you do. Um, 
you know how there's two approaches to vegan food. One is to make something taste like like a, like a vegan hamburger that sort of pretends to be meat. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other approach that it's like a bean burger or a nut burger or something like that. It's not trying to be a hamburger, but it's served on a bun with nice vegetables. And we have both kinds. I mean, the fake meat did not has not really taken off too much in Japan for for for. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe that's not true. They, they they do some fake sausages and things here, but I would take a vegan to a place or a vegetarian. I'd prefer a vegetarian. I would take them to a place where all the dishes are made from tofu, and they're flavored in a certain way. Uh, but if you're a strict vegetarian, it's going to be tough because they always want to flavor things with meat or a broth that has fish in it or something. So strict vegan is still going to have a hard time there. I think in Fukuoka, mm-hmm. there there are a few places that are pure, and they're they're very careful that there's no shortening or any trace of animal product in it. But it's not like the UK, where I guess what is it, ten percent of the population considers themselves vegans. Yeah, I don't know. I've, that's just unimaginable here in Japan. Even though this country used to be a Buddhist place and no meat was served, things have gone the other way. And there's plenty of pork, plenty of beef, plenty of chicken, in addition to all kinds of seafood, because you know, you're never too far from the coast in Japan. If someone says that they were vegan, my first choice would be to try to take them to a place where they're not imitating meat and uh, the things are cooked. Um, ah, actually, I just remembered. There's a thing called shojin yori. Shojin is it? It's made by Buddhist priests, and everything is prepared at, um, with vegetables only. And that that's something that's similar to kaiseki, but you won't find any meat at all in it. And that's, that's really popular, especially with tourists from Taiwan. It's interesting that it's the Buddhist, because when we lived in Hawaii, we used to go to this Buddhist restaurant in Honolulu, and they had the very modest place but they had the most wonderful vegan food there. We used to go there all the time. It was within walking distance of our apartment. So leave it to the Buddhists. They'll take care of it. <laughs> Look up the Buddhists, uh, vegetarians and vegans, and, and, you'll be, uh, and you'll be well rewarded, it sounds like. Absolutely. That, that's it. I wanted to ask you about something called uh, Japanese cheesecake. I love New York-style cheesecake, especially with a little strawberry or raspberry uh, sauce on the top. But... Um, Japanese cheesecake, probably something different. What's that all about? Well, okay, so Japanese cheesecake, when I was looking it up, um, Japanese cheesecake was explained to me as something that wiggles, right? It's <laughs> a fluffy cheesecake. The thing is, Fukuoka is not like the rest of Japan in that sense. And we love New York-style cheesecake, and we especially like what they call Basque cheesecake. Are you familiar with that? No, from the Basque country Basque. of Spain and France. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So we've had this cheesecake. In Japan, they always shorten the words. And so we, we called Basque cheesecake, what, Basque, I guess it was. <laughs> and you could buy it at convenience stores, Basque-style cheesecake in Japan. Awesome. And so today, today I happened to have lunch with a friend from France, and I had to take him to the most famous cheesecake place we have. Because if he's French, the name of this cheesecake shop would appall him. And yet the food itself was really great. Wonderful, delicious cheesecakes. Kind of in the New York tradition, like a Basque cheesecake, 
um, not not so soft, not so fluffy, but a little bit more cheesy and heavy. And the name of the shop is Kaka. <laughs> you got to take in my friends to have some Kaka. <laughs> yeah. What's what's for dessert? Kaka. <laughs> and we're going to Kaka, baby. <laughs> Oh, and good. you know they they know what they're doing. They know that it has a strange meaning. But I think this company has like four locations in Fukuoka. Kaka is doing well. <laughs> it's they got a good sense of humor. I guess so. Yeah. I talk about this on the podcast all the time. How much I love to go to local markets, and. I was just wondering, you must have, because you're right there on the water, so I imagine there's amazing fish markets, but it doesn't have to be limited to fish. What what are the local markets like? Where where would you go to uh, do your shopping? Well, okay. For one, the real food marketplaces, I don't go to for shopping. I actually go to them more for a visual and experience because I find that when I cook, I kind of cook. Well, it's terrible to say that. The markets, there are really wonderful markets. We have an incredible seafood market, but you've got to go at five in the morning if you want to see any action. There are a couple of locations where you can go to to get the fish from a local fisherman, but I'm not that extreme. Um, And for vegetables, too, there is a traditional place called Yanagibashi in Hakata, and that's worth going to just to see the shops that are 50, 60 years old still traditional. But to tell you the truth, if I'm going to buy food for a feast, uh, it almost sounds like a cop-out. I don't know if I can consider myself a true foodie, but I like to use frozen broccoli and things like that, which are available where you just toss them in the pan and fry them. So it's, I'm not a purist when it comes to the vegetables that I get. Well, we, we'll, we will definitely go to the farmer's market in Saga for fresh like mushrooms and tofu and some of the root vegetables, those those you always get fresh. But the standard things like uh, green peppers and onions, I like them pre-cut and ready to rock. Well, I, I won't take tourists generally to places that are using the frozen veggies, I think, because I guess most of those are for cooking kind of fusion-type foods that I do. I mean, we, we have a tradition of cooking like Italian, Japanese, and Mexican, Mexican, Japanese, or Chinese style, Chinese, Italian, really, really crazy fusions over here because of my family. We have international people in our family. I want to just say something real quick about frozen and canned vegetables, because I think they get a bad rap, but my opinion is, and this is just my opinion, is there's definitely a place for those in your foodie kitchen. For me personally, I'll give one example. We have a really hard time getting good, fresh peas uh, in Portugal for whatever reason. I don't know what it is. Um, But I love peas. And so I buy canned peas. And the thing is, generally, when these vegetables are picked, cut, and processed, whether they're canned or frozen, it's at the peak of their ripeness. So yeah, I know frozen food gets a gets a bad rap, but generally, you know, the quality is really, really good. And in my opinion, people shouldn't be bad, shouldn't feel bad for uh, using these products. That's just me, though. I'm I'm sure you know the the ghost of Anthony Bourdain is probably cursing me right now. But hey, that's me. 
I was just thinking that Anthony's probably yeah shaking his fingers at us now. <laughs> the the thing about the like okay, so you if you you've already admitted that you like uh, canned peas, which means you like the soft ones, right? Yes, I do. So, but for, I do, and I love fresh peas too. But I love those soft peas. And so you definitely grew up in, in New England, didn't you? Because that, that, that's what I grew up, and I got I tried to get away from that stuff. And so I would go for the frozen ones, and I'll cook them really, really flash fried with a little oyster sauce or a little nampla just to bring out the flavor. Right, right. And they should never become mushy like that. I think I think we overdosed on those as a kid growing up on the East Coast. Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely. Uh... You know, there's definitely some bad ones too. Like, uh, there's nothing worse than mushy, uh, boiled, frozen Brussels sprouts. Like, like that's a crime. Oh no, kidding! <laughs> you know, that's it's a crime. But if you, that's right. I mean, if you could have like fresh Brussels sprouts with pepper, salt, and butter, all of a sudden they become palatable. Do you remember growing up in the East Coast? You probably had these lima beans. Do you remember those? Uh, I actually grew up in Chicago, but we would get frozen lima beans. Um, and, and okay, frozen. Frozen. And do they even come in the can? I don't know. I'm trying to think. But anyway, yeah, we used to have frozen lima beans. That to me is like my, my childhood, always lima beans, right? I have not seen lima beans in 38 years in Japan. I wonder <laughs> if they even, somebody must have said no to that. <laughs> kind of like President Bush when he said no Brussels sprouts. Or right. Something like that. Right, right. No broccoli. Yeah. Oh my God. So no funny. Broccoli. That was it. No broccoli. How could you say no broccoli? What a terrible thing. Yeah, right. But if it's if it's soft broccoli, though, I'll agree with it. But if you have it crisp and nice and cooked in a Chinese way, yeah, Asian Asian stir fry is quite good. Even raw with some hummus. Oh yeah, and that's another thing. Hummus is is starting to be big in Japan. Mm. And stuffed grape leaves, which is something you're not going to get in Japan. Right. But we imported cans, and that you have to get canned. We don't even have them in bottles, but canned stuff greatly is keeping me alive. Well, Bruce, before I let you go, there is one last thing I want to ask you about, because as I was researching for our conversation, I ran across this thing called the Hakata Dantaku Festival, which is held every, every May. And you guys get millions of visitors um, for this festival. So it must be pretty yes. special. It is a parade of everything under the sun. And when I first moved to Japan, my very first year, they said, okay, you guys are foreign students. You're studying Japanese. You guys be in the Dontaku parade. And so they had us put on these traditional Japanese jackets and gave us these little rice paddles and showed us a little song and dance kind of thing. And we marched along. And there's these big processions. It's kind of like Carnival in Rio. I mean, that's the closest I can describe Dontaku festival. It's it's a parade of singing, well, dancing and drumming and music and all. And I have to admit that after going to it a couple of times when I first got here, because so many people converge on the city, it's the best time to take a vacation and get out of town. Right. right. <laughs> because the place is just flooded with people every, every May. Yeah. But it, you have to come watch it at least once. It's pretty cool. There's another festival, though, that you didn't mention from Hakata, and it's really famous. It's called Yamakasa. Yamakasa. And it's got an 800-year history. Yeah. If you look up Yama, maybe Yamagasa. Sometimes it's K, sometimes it's G. Yama, Yamagasa, Yamakasa, is when men carry these giant, I don't know how to describe it really in English. It's a float 
it's it's a like a, 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 a oh, it looks like kind of a shrine and uh really tall and it weighs a couple tons and it's ornate with lots of colors and bells and whistles and anyway and the standard uniform for participating in this parade is like a loincloth and a and a and a white top so it's an event where all the the women enjoy going out there to see all the all the cheeks um <laughs> And it's still to this day that's that's what people wear these loincloth bottom things and a and a and a white kind of a Japanese style jacket and they run through the streets racing against different teams from different areas and that festival people come from all over the world to you know once they've lived in Japan they want to come back and be in that festival and that happens in July just at the end of the rainy season. Be an experience to have at least once in your lifetime, I think, right? Oh, yeah. And it also happens early in the morning, too. You have to be up at 4.50 to catch it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bruce Handel, Hakata Foodie Experiences, great talking to you. So interesting to learn not not only about the food of your adopted city, but also about the culture. I feel like I've got a little bit of an insight from an American's viewpoint of what it's like, you know, the, the differences and the similarities. And we even got to talk a little bit about Portugal, which is always fun for me. Thank you so much for being on the show. If folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, the easiest way to reach me is to go to www.hakatafoodie.com and there's a contact form and send me a message. Sounds like it would be an awesome trip to Japan Don't just go to Tokyo and Kyoto. Make your way down to Hakata. Visit Bruce because it sounds like the food scene is booming there and would be so much fun. Thanks again, Bruce. Look forward to keeping in touch with you. Okay, take care. Okay, great conversation with Bruce. I love how he makes what could seem like an inaccessible place easy to understand and easy to enjoy. You can book a tour with Bruce or learn more about Hakata Foodie experiences at HakataFoodie.com. I've also posted links to Bruce and more in the show notes at RadioMisfits.com slash DED259. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, another exotic place. Akaba Jordan for something called Mutabal and a dish that needs a drummer to serve it. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about Pastel Cordobas, a cake from Cordoba, Spain, with roots dating back over a millennium. Read about that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also posted a new video This one is the first part of a two-parter about the Lisbon neighborhood of Campo Dorique. I try a classic Portuguese soup there and follow the trail of a notorious serial killer. You can watch that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel at Destination Eat Drink 946. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla, a guy who makes ramen broth with scotch. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.